Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Well, I got here early and then got to yakking and ran myself late, so I guess it's time to get started. And I'm really excited because I figured out how to make my notes big enough I can read them. So, <laughs> um, We're in Romans chapter 10 tonight. James has been walking us through the book of Romans. This class is actually going to continue into September so that James can finish Romans. Um, but we'll be moving from Wednesday night, after next week, we'll be moving from Wednesday nights to Sunday mornings because the fall series will be starting. Um, So James is out of town tonight, so I'm going to be filling in on chapter 10, and um, as I was putting the lesson together, I realized I was stealing virtually everything line by line out of Johnson's commentary, and so I said, well, this seems very inefficient, so my outline is Johnson's commentary, (laughs) because it just makes life easier. Um, I did a little bit of research, I thought it was kind of interesting, I didn't realize... um, Johnson was very much from the Bloomington, Illinois area, had lived some places in Iowa, not far from where I had lived as a kid, um, and, and bounced around between several universities. Um, and his family had actually come to the Carolina regions just before the revolution. Um, so it's kind of just some interesting stuff that I found on him that I didn't realize before. But I don't know if you've ever looked at his commentary. The one downside of it is I have never seen a version of his commentary that has been like retyped with a modern font that is easy to read and clear. It tends to be on, the version I have is not quite newsprint, but it's a little bit better than newsprint, and it's very much a photograph of something that was probably typeset by hand. Well, I'm positive it was typeset by hand and done. So I finally found a way to make it big enough I can read it fairly easily (laughs) without trying to use the book directly. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. So let's start by, let's we're going to kind of read the section, kind of section by section, and then we'll go back and talk through what's actually being discussed here. So we'll start with um, the first oh, four or five verses here. Chapter 10. Brethren, my, heart desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for everyone that believeth. So let's stop there. In chapter 9, Paul uses the word brethren, but is referring to his countrymen. He's referring very much to um, Israel. He's referring to those, those Israelites there. Here, he's speaking not just of his Jewish kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's meaning brethren in Christ, those united by spiritual ties. And he's saying here that his heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they be saved. Clearly, Paul had grown up in the, in the synagogues, in the temple. Um, we know his background. We know that he would have been a Pharisee among Pharisees. He had all the right schooling. 
even though he was called uh, to preach and teach to the Gentiles. But he still very much loved his countrymen, and he wanted them uh, to accept Christ as well. And so he's opening here by saying, you know, this is my desire. This is something, you know, he wants them to be saved. And then in in verse 2, he starts off with, they have a zeal for God. I think it's interesting here that he says they, because even when he was counted amongst them, he could have said very clearly for himself, I. Um, He shared that zeal. They were religious, they were conscious, um, they were... They were very zealous to do what they believed God wanted them to do, but ultimately they were mistaken and they were fanatical in their beliefs. And we can see um, some examples of their, of their zeal. If we go look um, in Acts 21... Acts 21, 27 through 31. Then Paul took them in on the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, which time and offering should be made for each one of them. Now when they had seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing them in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on them, crying out, Men of Israel, help. This man has brought these Greeks into the temple. And if you recall what they're saying is they're, they're quite upset about this. They're making a big deal about it, and they're getting the authorities involved. But ultimately, what they say is, well, we saw him with them before, and we assumed that this had happened. I mean, this is based on things that they assumed had taken place, but we see that they're quite protective of the laws and the rules around the temple. So they're definitely showing that, that zeal that they have to make sure they're, they're doing what they can to follow out what he says here um, is their, uh, what they're seeing as God's righteousness. But it says here that they're ignorant of what that actually is in verse 3. Being ignorant of God's righteousness, it is now shown that their zeal is not according to knowledge. So he says that up in verse 2, or in, um, in verse 2 there where he says, it, they're not doing this out of knowledge, they're doing it out of their ignorance. Their, their zeal is mistaken. They had no knowledge of God's plan of righteousness, righteousness being believing upon Christ, but that's something clearly that they had rejected. Um, And they sought a righteousness of their own works, uh, works secured by keeping the law and by obeying the traditions of men. Um, This is something, if we go to Mark 7, verses 7 and 8, and they vainly worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many such things that you do. So there again, very much like we saw in Acts, they're holding to these traditions and things that had been laid down, and they're not paying attention to what the prophets and others had actually shown them, and then even the teaching and miracles and the confirmation of the teachings of Christ. They're ignoring while they hold on to, um, well, what's called in Mark 7, vanity. In vain they worship me. They're holding on to these these traditions of men. And as part of that, we see that they're refusing to submit to God's righteousness through through faith. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. The end of the law of righteousness. So the meaning here is that the whole law pointed to Christ. 
right? Even Moses' law, even what the patriarchs were promised, that was all pointing forward towards the cross. And it pointed to Christ and his righteousness. They were the objects of the old law. Yet the Jews clung to the law, especially to the bits and pieces they had added to it and the complexities that they had woven in amongst it. They clung to that law and refused to believe upon Christ and who the law was the fulfillment. They missed that whole piece that the law was, what's it called? It's a schoolmaster, it's a teacher, to bring them to Christ. And they glossed over that because they didn't want things to change, right? They wanted things to stay the way they always had been, which is interesting if you consider their situation in the first century. I mean, they had kind of meeked out an existence to an extent, but it's not like it was great. It wasn't like it was the glory days. It's not like they had David or Solomon still in the temple, right? Um, they're surrounded by Romans. They're uh, a slave people. They're second-class citizens in their own land, yet they're still not wanting things to change. I always find it interesting that they're, they're still wanting to hold on to the law. My guess is it's that last little piece they had of the glory days, and so that was potentially making it harder for them to let go of it. And then at the end of four there, um, to everyone that believeth, as long as the Jews remained in unbelief, they were cut off from Christ. He who believes submits to God's plan of righteousness. So if you recall in, in chapter 9, Paul was basically laying out a case against the Israelites, against the Jews, about the things they had rejected. And here we have that he's, he's, he's pointing this out again. So let's drop down. Uh, let's go ahead and look at five... There's a lot in the middle of this chapter. We'll go ahead and read 5 through 11, and then we'll, then we'll go back through it. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. The man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which, of faith, which is of faith speaketh to the wise. Say, not in, that, not in thine heart, who shall ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the depths, that is, to bring Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou confessest with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. So back at five. For Moses described the righteousness of the law. So Paul now is showing the Jews who cling to the law that the law itself is against the law as a way of securing righteousness. Moses writeth. So he's He's going all the way back here. If we, let's look at Leviticus. Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. If a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So under the old law, you have to keep them. But can you really keep them perfectly? No. I mean, it, it was there as a, as a placeholder. It was, it, was a, it was to carry them to Christ. You shall therefore keep my statutes and judgments. He who keeps the law in all respects blameless shall have life. But Paul elsewhere, especially Paul of all people, we know through his teachings, has shown 
um, that no one can keep the law perfectly. Um, That righteousness then requires a perfect obedience, which is ultimately almost a sinless life. What Jew could say that he had never sinned? The man which does these things shall live by them. So then in six. But the righteousness which is of faith, that is, God's righteousness, in contrast with that of the law, So this passage that follows is quoted directly from Deuteronomy 30. Um, Paul modifies it somewhat. Um, Let's still look at it. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 30, uh, 11 through 14. We'll notice that he changes, he doesn't change the spirit of it at all. The words are a little different. Um, Starting in 11, Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment which I command to you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you shall say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. So we find here this the same idea... Um, You know, the first one being the commands to Moses and Israel, but it spiritually applies to the gospel when he says, who will ascend into heaven? So the Jews expected a savior reigning on the earth, a visible king, an earthly kingdom. Um, This is nothing new. Um, Hence, the idea of bring down Christ from heaven where you say he is, and we will believe upon him, is in essence what they're saying here. And in seven, who shall descend unto the abyss? Another stumbling block was the Jews was the death and the burial of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, they held that to be proof that he was not the Christ. They were still wont to demand that they should see the risen Christ with their own eyes, or that he be produced from the realms of the dead. To have meet the demand of the Jews would have been sight rather than faith. That's an important thing we need to remember in 10 is that we're talking about faith. And we're going to get to a passage here in 9 that I would make an argument is still a stumbling block even for Christians today when it comes to faith. So the Jews are basically saying, what Paul's basically saying is that you're still asking for proof, right? Christians are saying that Christ is in heaven and you're saying, hey, well then somebody bring him down here to us so we can see him. But he's dead. We saw him. He went in the tomb. He died on the cross. We want somebody to bring him so that we can see him. Verse 8. But what saith it? What does God's righteousness demand? Okay, so the reply here is that we do not have to go either to heaven or to Hades to lay hold of salvation, but the word is nigh. Right? The response is that the gospel is at hand. Faith in it nourishes the heart, and openly confessing will secure salvation. Now, this is more fully explained in the next verse, but this is where Paul's heading here is. We get to 9, and I'll admit, 9 through 12, I've spent well, most of my life before I became a Christian in Christendom at large are verses that were used all the time out of context. Verse 9, Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, I want to walk through this really slowly. 
Because if thou will confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord. I'm not sure today we understand how important confession is. And I'm not talking about the Catholic version of confession. I'm talking about confessing with our mouths who Jesus is. Confessing him as Lord. Let's look at some other passages and see how important this is. Uh, Matthew 10 verse 32. Matthew 10, verse 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Him therefore, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. I mean, that's straight from Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, is that not the goal of every Christian? I mean, ultimately, that's what we want, right? And we see Paul here bringing it out here that you shall confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. Let's look also at Luke. Um, Here's another good example. Luke 12 and verse 8. I'm going to look at 8 and 9. Also I say to you, whoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like confession's a big deal. When I was reviewing this, it kind of dawned on me that I think this has lost some importance to us today. This letter was written to who? This isn't a trick question. It's in the name of the book. The book was written to the Romans. What did it mean in the first century in Rome to confess Christ? Yeah, that's exactly right, Bill. A much bigger deal, potentially death, depending on exactly who was ruling in Rome at the time that you decided to make that confession, possibly certainly death, And they're being told that they need to make confession. I think we gloss over that. I think we gloss over the level of commitment that the confession that's talked about here in Romans 10.9 actually is. We're talking about a confession that's out loud before other men that potentially means my death. I'm guessing no one in here with the confession that we think of as part of the plan of salvation as something that we do to then be baptized was ever done under pains of death. But that's what's being described here when we look at this. This is a much deeper level confession than what all of my you know, Baptist family members have ever used when they talk about simply confessing Christ. There's a lot more meaning and depth than this than mere words among fellow people who already believe everything that you believe. To openly confess Christ in those days, days of active persecution, was a trial of faith of the severest kind. Note distinctly that there is no promise here to a concealed faith, which is interesting. What we don't see Paul talking about here is an ability to make a confession to Tony, because I know he's already on the same page as me and we're good and he's not going to sell me out, and then I'm going to keep it secret, and then I'm just going to say a little prayer in my heart, and now I'm good with God. 
It's talked about here is a confession among men. We also see this confession in Acts 8, 37, when we're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, that's the requirement. He says, hey, here's the water. What prevents me from being baptized? If you confess, you can. I mean, this was a, this was a part of it, and this was a big deal. And shalt believe in thine heart. And shalt believe in thine heart. That is, with all the heart. The belief must not be only a mental assent. I mean, this is something we still understand today when we use the phrase, I believe. There's a difference when we're talking to people when we say, oh yeah, I believe that. And no, 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 I believe with all my heart. And what we're trying to convey there is often the difference between exactly what Johnson described here, a simple mental assent of, yeah, I know, I, I believe that, yeah, I know, I know that's true. And I believe with all my heart is usually when we're trying to convey something to the point of, yeah, I believe, and that belief is going to move me to action. Right? I believe this with all my heart. We've been talking about a biblical worldview on Sunday morning. Uh, Keith, well, weep. I taught once. Keith Anderson's teaching a class on, uh, on Sunday mornings talking about having a biblical worldview. And uh, to me, this belief with all thine heart is that belief that says, hey, I believe this and I believe the scriptures to the point where I'm going to conform my view of the world and everything else I see, I'm going to look at that through that lens of the scriptures. That's a belief with all thine heart. Not just in a sense of, yeah, 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 I know that's what the scripture says and I'm going to go do whatever I want anyway. Belief with all, that, all thine heart is that getting to that point of not only do I believe it, but it's going to affect what I actually do and how I act. And that's what's called for here. This is not, like I said, it's not just mental assent, but a belief that brings the whole man into loving, trusting, and obedience to Christ. Such a faith is actually referred to earlier in the book in 1.5. In um, Romans 1.5, we read that through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also were called of Jesus Christ. So here we see Paul already from the outset of this book is tying obedience and faith together. Thou shalt be saved. Such a faith confessed by his loving subject imparts him once he's been moved to that obedience, right? That's where that connection comes. We see this actually a few chapters earlier. Let's look at Romans. Let's go back and look at Romans 6, 1 through 4. Because we see this the same idea tied in again here. But it's interesting because earlier in 6, when Paul talks about this, he actually talks about it in context where he's actually speaking of baptism. Because what's interesting is this is the passage that people will use to try to get around baptism. They'll say, all you need is faith. It says right here, right? 9. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with all thine heart that he was raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But if you look at what's actually meant in all that verse, in fact, look at what Paul has already written earlier in 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. 
How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So to try to take this one verse, or this portion of the book, sets it in contrast with what Paul is teaching even in the same letter, much less throughout the New Testament. Verse 10. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. Such a belief, the faith that saves, is a power over life. It influences the actions and brings us into the obedience of thy faith and yielding to Christ wherein is found pardon. So the heart, in the, with the heart the man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, the faith of the confession and obedience, we could not know whether ours was really... This was an interesting point when Johnson brought this up. I'm going to be honest, I had never thought about this before. Why... Why, why is it here that we need to confess with the mouth? There's a value also for the confessor. Because now I know. I know because I'm willing to do this even when it's dangerous for me. I have stood up and I have said this. The faith of the heart must, open, must be openly confessed. So really... I mean, this is a test of faith. Do I believe this enough that I'm willing to confess this with my mouth? Am I willing to say this openly before men? Unless Christ had provided such a test as confession and obedience, we could not know whether ours was really a belief of the heart. Which is interesting. Because you would find yourself saying things like, well, I think I believe that. There's, there's a line that has to be crossed. It's interesting that he referred to it here as a test, because it's a test that happens within ourselves. We get to make the decision, but we're told what it is that we're to go do. Unless Christ had provided such a confession, um, oh, was, we would not know if it's really a belief of the heart. That our faith moves us to confession is to us an assurance of salvation. The whole Christian life is a confession. For the scripture saith, let's move on to 11. So it says, for the scripture saith, the scripture here being referred to um, was referenced as Isaiah 28 and 16. Let's go look at Isaiah 28 and 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act harshly. So the scripture has predicted a salvation by faith when it says he believes shall not be put to shame and hence such a plan of righteousness provides. So it's interesting, he's talking about how he wants Israel to be saved as well. That's where he starts. And he gets down here and he points out for Israel, hey, by the way, if you guys go back and look in Isaiah, what did Isaiah talk about? He talked about a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. 
can't remember if that was King James or New King James that used hastily. Probably New King James. But he's pointing out this element of faith all the way back even in the old law. By faith, when it says, all right. So he's pointing out this um, plan of righteousness was provided for in the Jewish scriptures. So now the next section. Let's look at 12 through 15. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all, for the same Lord over all is rich under all that call upon him. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him who have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring, and bring glad tidings of good things. So in 12, we see that he's clearly talking about these two groups, the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks clearly being anyone who isn't a Jew, the Gentiles. And the Jews objected to salvation by faith instead of by the law, which is what they saw. Paul has just shown that righteousness cannot be obtained by the law. And secondly, that the prophets had predicted salvation by faith. They had, they had spoken of this um, even in Isaiah. But the Jew is now, is now supposed to... Excuse me. But the Jew is now supposed to object that his salvation was for the Jews only. Yet Paul is preaching it to the Gentiles. Hence he declares that it is for Greek, Gentiles, as well as for Jews, as shown by the passage, just as quoted in verse of, uh, 11, for whatever race by a second quotation from the prophet. So in Joel, this is an important one. Let's look at Joel as well. Joel 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom my Lord calls. When he says whoever here, I think it's interesting to note that in context it appears that what's meant by whoever is simply a statement of whether they're Jew or Greek. That's what's being discussed here. Their salvation for the Jews and their salvation for the Greeks. This is not, I don't believe, a passage that's meant to stand alone because when you get to 13, people will point to this as well, much like with 9, and they'll say, for whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They'll say, that's it, out of context, that's the whole thing. There's nothing else you need. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. But if you look at what's actually being talked about here, you start in 12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich unto all that call upon him. For whoever shall call upon him in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's speaking of whether they're Jews or Greeks, they shall be saved. This isn't the entire plan of salvation in one verse. This is a discussion talking about how he wants the Jews to be saved. He's been sent to teach the Greeks, the Gentiles, and that both have access to the gospel. The call upon in the name of the Lord implies, one, that the true God Jehovah in the Hebrew... Quotation, 
shall be approached in worship, and two, that there shall be something more than saying, Lord, Lord. We know that because if we go look at Matthew 7, 21 and 22, we were quite clearly taught, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, def- he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? We all know this passage. So what's being taught here is not a simple call out on the name of the Lord. So the language here, wherever used, implies coming to the Lord and calling on him in his appointed way. For example, this is comparable to language found in Acts 22. Verse 16, now why are you waning? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on him in the way that he has appointed. We can also look at uh, Acts 2, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord is defined by the Lord. Not me. So this promise of Joel, since it says whosoever, is not limited to just the Jewish race. That's the point. That's what Paul is talking about here. Why is it important that he talk about this here? Because he's writing this letter to Gentiles. And he's trying to make sure they understand that what you're hearing, this gospel that you're hearing, this is not just for the Jews. This is for everyone. That's incredibly good news. If you're a Roman, if you're not Jewish, if you're a Gentile, I mean, that's important for every one of us. This is not a small point. We just need to make sure that we apply it appropriately about what's being taught here. Paul isn't teaching the whole plan of salvation in Romans 10. He's trying to make a very specific point. That the Greeks have access, the Gentiles have access to the gospel as well. All right, 14. We're not going to get done if I don't hurry up. How shall they call upon him and who they have not believed? The passage quoted from the prophet shows that the Gentiles also were to have the opportunity of salvation. Hence the duty of the preaching is for them to know. They could not call upon the Lord, verse 13, without faith. But there could be no faith in the Lord unless they had heard of him. Because knowledge is an element of faith. Knowledge alone is not faith. But you can't have faith in that which you have no knowledge. One has to happen before the other. But they could not hear the gospel story until it was preached to them. Hence the preaching to the Gentiles was essential to carry out the purpose of God. But how shall they preach? Except they be sent. Those must go out to them who have knowledge of the gospel. Hence it was needful that the apostles and evangelists be sent. Hence Christ said, go into all the world and preach to every creature. Thus Paul shows the duty was laid upon him to preach to the Greeks as well as the Jews. Which I think we need to remember was a big sticking point. That was one of the things when when Paul was on his missionary journeys, 
There are lots of things he said that made the Jews mad in the towns that he visited on his missionary trips. But one of those things was absolutely the fact that he wasn't preaching just to them. That he was preaching something that allowed, well, those heathen folks hope as well. As it is written, all right, as it is written. So let's go look at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, our, our, uh, your God reigns. This message was to the Gentiles. Blessed tidings. And the passage quoted from Isaiah shows under a figure how those would rejoice who believed in the glad news. We see this again in Acts 13, verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Sixteen through eighteen. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have ye not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went unto all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Verse sixteen. All had not yet heard it, and hence could not obey it. To those who received the gospel, it is glad tidings. These fulfill the prediction of the prophet. But many are in unbelief and hence do not obey the gospel. Note that the gospel is to be obeyed. This needs... This doesn't really need to surprise us because Isaiah predicted this also. Um, If you think about it, one of my favorite passages during the Lord's Supper is Isaiah 53, um, which starts, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed our report? 17. So then faith comes by hearing. Hence the need of preaching. Have you ever thought about it, that if God just miraculously wrote on people's hearts or talked to people directly or told them what they needed to know, why do the same churches that believe that still have preachers? Because you wouldn't need them. I mean, if that's how, if that's how things were propagated, we could dispense with preaching. But the divine arrangement is that it should result from hearing the word of God preached for an example of, of the gospel plan. I think we can all think of examples. Um, Well, throughout Acts is probably the most obvious. (laughs) Have they not heard? So who's being alluded to here, both the Jews and the Gentiles? Now, the objector might say, well, if faith comes by hearing, so few have heard that we're not responsible for our unbelief. And the apostle here says, not so fast. The opportunity to hear has been very widely extended. Um, In fact, even in Psalms 19, 4 and 5, we read, Their line goes out through all the earth, 
and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Even the psalmist wrote of how widely the law had been dispersed and how people knew of of God's people. Um, It's interesting, this objection is still often used today and even heard today. And I mean, I think we could all pretty easily agree communication's easier now than it's ever been in the history of humans. Their sound, that of the preachers of the gospel, has gone out unto all the earth. When the vast multitude converted on Pentecost were scattered to their homes, they carried the gospel to all parts of the civilized world. Paul was now writing to the church in Rome where, I mean, apostles had never been. And Paul is still spreading the word beyond um, their own travels. So let's wrap up with the last few verses here. Starting in 19. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you unto jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Anger you. But Elias was very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me out. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hand unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Did not Israel know why the Jew is supposed to object if the gospel has been extended so widely? Why, why are they objecting? Is this, gen- is this greater portion of Israel in ignorance that the Gentiles were to be saved? Paul replied that Israel should have known, one, because Moses foretells of the call of another people to the favor of God. We can actually read about this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. And two, Isaiah still more plainly predicts the salvation of the Gentiles. In Isaiah 65 and verse 1. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. In the very next verse, he actually then predicts the falling away of Israel. So then in verse 2, he says, I have stretched out my hand all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not in good according to their own thoughts. All day long, he's even quoting here from Isaiah 2. It presents a figure of a parent with hands extended, appealing or, um, appealing to a wayward child. That child was the Jewish nation. It was cast off because it would be cast off. It refused to listen to appeals. One last verse. Let's look at Matthew 23, verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the wing, but you were not willing. 
The apostle is far from ascribing the rejection of Israel to a divine decree, but he assigns the cause to Israel itself. Just so the Savior says in the passage 2337, it refers to how often would I have gathered, but you would not. The divine vision was that Israel would be saved, but Israel stubbornly refused. So that brings us to the end of chapter 10. And hopefully you can see that what Paul is really talking about through this entire chapter is Israel and the Gentiles, how they both have access to the gospel, and that trying to take some of these applications here where that's the context of what he's speaking of and try to pull out of that some individual plan of salvation for each individual is a misapplication of a few verses and ignoring greater context even within Romans itself. So I realize this is probably a rather dry lesson, but I hope you got something out of it. I know I found it interesting when I was putting it together. It's not always the most exciting stuff where we find some real meaning that I think brings light in places that we're likely to have conversations with others when they bring up passages out of 10 and try to use those as justification for, I guess you could say much like the Jews, their own version of what they want righteousness to look like. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.